Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Cooperative Conversations. This is Caroline Savory, and I'm here with a very special guest, Lisa Stolarski. Lisa is a cooperative developer who lives in Detroit, Michigan, um, and works with a, a company called Cooperation Group. And Lisa is somebody who has a very special place in my heart because Lisa is the person who got me into cooperative development work years ago. So I'm really excited to be speaking with Lisa today. And the theme of the conversation is about mentorship, um, mentorship in the context of cooperative development and the cooperative movement. So big warm welcome to Lisa. Thank you. Thank you very much, Caroline. That was uh, very kind. <laughs> I hear some bird song in the background. Are you on your porch in Detroit? I am. Uh, actually, I, I live in a little borough um, that is not Detroit. It's surrounded by Detroit, except for about um, maybe 100 yards or so where we uh, border another little town called Hamtramck that's also surrounded by Detroit. Uh, it, my, the town I live in is called Highland Park. And it is where um, Ford Motor Company built the first ever continually moving assembly line. So there's a, an interesting automobile history here. Cool. Thanks so much for sharing that. And you've been living there for how long now? Five years and a bit. Nice. Um, and before that, you lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is where I also lived for many years yeah. and where we met. Absolutely. Um, would you mind sharing the story from your perspective of how um, how we ended up coming together and, and how you brought me into the, the cooperative development work that you were doing? I won't, sure. um, if, you, if you don't mind. Yeah. Of course. Um, so, uh, um, as I recall, um, I knew you from the food co-op um, in... Uh, in Pittsburgh, East End Food Co-op. Um, and, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the first time I met you, but you were in other collectives and things. And, um, but generally that group of people, you know, the people who frequented the food co-op. Um, <clears throat> and um, uh, in Pittsburgh, we used to have uh, this, this festival in the park, um, which I can't, Peaceburg, I think it was the Peaceburg, thing you remember with the uh, we, we don't um have a basically a saturday full of lots of fun and then everybody would get together and hold hands in a big circle uh at some point in the day maybe more than one point in the day and um make expressions of uh um you know peace and community and um at one of those gatherings we got to talking about cooperatives and I had a project that I could use some help on, um, and that was a, a subcontracted from uh, Keystone Development Center. Uh, and uh, that project was uh, developing uh, a buying club in a neighborhood called Hazelwood. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, you took over a good portion of that project and did a fantastic job. Um, I mean, you the resources and materials that you made for that were um, were astonishingly good. <laughs> and um, uh, so the clients were pleased, I was pleased. Um, and 
unfortunately, there wasn't at that time a lot of room in Keystone Development Center itself for people to work. And so, uh, um, you know, we didn't both end up working there. In fact, I moved on not long after that um, uh, to, to work in Washington. Um, but um, uh, you went to some trainings after that, um, got cooperation works training and um, started to create your own connections and your own relationships in the co-op world. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> that's, that's a great recounting of it. That is how I remember it as well. Um, but I, I also want to share, I remember a, some specifics from that first conversation where um, I, I just knew of you, right? We were acquainted in the same, yeah. some of the same circles. Um, but at the time, so I had been with Freeride, the bicycle collective that was run on a consensus decision-making basis and was all horizontal um, for a few years. And I had um, just returned from a road trip across the US where out of my own fascination with best practices, what I would learn later is called best practices. Um, I was just really fascinated with what makes co-ops or specifically collectives at the time. Um, and there's just a subtle distinction between the two, uh, between collective and co-op, mostly of formality, right? Um, but I was really fascinated with what makes them work or fail. What makes them feel empowering to be a part of or disempowering to be yes. a part of. And so I was uh, visiting with all these collectives all across the country that were listed in the back of the slingshot journal, <laughs> the yeah. slingshot planner, right? And so I, I just was collecting these interviews and, and trying to study for patterns because I was personally fascinated. And so I think you had, you had either caught wind of that or you just were aware of my activity in Freeride and in other collectives throughout Pittsburgh. Um, and you took me aside and you said, you seem to be interested in collectives or cooperatives in general right? Mm -hmm. Not just your cooperative or your right. collective. And I said, yeah, I'm really interested. And then you said, you know, have you thought about a career in cooperative development? And right. at the time I was like, what's that? Because um, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a strange, a niche kind of a thing, you know, and, and at the time I had no idea that people that there was such a thing as getting paid to help develop cooperatives. But when I learned that that was a thing, I was all in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the idea of helping to have multiple co-ops happen in the world is incredibly exciting. Once you're actually in co-op development, how incredibly difficult it is to create a single co-op is, uh, is rather daunting it can be um, and, uh, uh, and and so um, I remember um, the first year or so that I was helping to develop co-ops I, I believe I had uh, about 20 different inquiries um, you know uh, about um, cooperatives and I don't think any of them became cooperatives uh, ultimately and and so I, I started to, um, you know, make some assessment tools and that kind of thing. Uh, but it can be a very, very difficult struggle um, uh, um, 
to help to have happen. Yeah, that's a really important part of the story is that cooperatives are um, especially challenging to develop. Um, I think particularly in this context in the United States and in various communities um, throughout the United States where co-ops are not widespread, they're not commonly understood or known. Um, and so there's a lack of syst systematic supports for co-op development um, in those contexts. And that is cultural, it's also economic, there, you know, lack of financial resources for co-ops, um, just lack of understanding for how to structurally support the development of co-ops. And, and we've seen a lot of efforts at progress coming from the foundation and nonprofit sector um, right. toward, you know, how do we create those integral supports for co-ops? But it is still uh, an uphill, uphill challenge for sure. I've worked on many co-ops in my career and um, most of them have not, you know, reached their full potential, have not fully succeeded. Um, so, and that's just actually, it's normal when you look at small business development in general. Small businesses, you know, as, as much as we value small business development in this country, um, you know, culturally and socially and ethically, um, yeah. most of them fail <laughs> and co-ops are no exception. Right. So it was really interesting to me to learn that early on. Right. Um, actually, once a co-op is established, you know, and working in the way that co-ops are supposed to work, they actually have more longevity than other small businesses. Um, it's just getting to that place. And especially, like, there are many, many different kinds of co-ops and many, many different um, uh, industries where, where they're in. And the industry matters. And so does the kind of co-op. Um, uh, and the, the people who are the ones developing the co-op matter, whether it's coming from them personally, whether it's the plan of a nonprofit, um, there are a whole lot of things um, that, that factor into it. And if you wanna go into, like this might be a whole nother podcast going into parsing out you know, all of the different kinds of co-ops and how their development works and how, you know, relatively easy or difficult it is to, um, to be of service to them um, uh, as a result of these different factors. Um, that, that's something I've thought a lot about. Yeah, I would love to hear more about it from your expertise and your analysis in that, in that way. Um, and yeah, and maybe that is another another podcast. There's certainly much more that I want to want to dive into with you <laughs> yeah. um, than just than just this topic. But um, yeah, I, I so in my own story of how you acted as a mentor to me, um, you were very hands on and encouraging, and you showed me the ropes, things that I wouldn't have known how to go about doing early on in my career. For example you advised about how there's these national conferences and there's these trainings at the national level and that's really where where to go to yeah. plug into knowledge and resources and um you taught me about that there are scholarships available especially for young people getting into that work um and that you know there's uh the the greatest resource to a co-op developer is other co-op developers <laughs> right and and the the, the strong What's that? Definitely. Yeah. 
the strong ethic that's there in the cooperative movement of sharing information, sharing resources, cooperation among cooperatives is principle six, um, but you also see it among the co-op developers as well. And so I really felt quickly like welcomed into this fold and uh, that I could lean on on other people whenever I had questions about whatever project I was working on to really just put it out there to the community, specifically Cooperation Works is a national association of co-op developers. Like you can just put a question out there and people will be happy to give feedback and happy to respond. And so all yeah. of those things, you know, going into this, I wouldn't have known and you really helped me understand how to be successful. Um, in that way. So uh, again, kudos to, to you and to your passion for continuing on the legacy of co-op development and making sure that there's people doing it, you know, younger folk in my case that are coming up after you. And so, um, yeah, I would invite you to comment on that if you wish, but then I also want to ask about your story with mentorship. Um, how did you get into co-op development and, and was there anyone that mentored you or have you seen mentorship happening in the co-op movement that you really you know, that really impressed upon you? It was a few years before I had a mentor that I was interested in co-ops. Um, I was uh, on the board of the East End Food Co-op. In those days, the whole co-op world was our food co-op in Pittsburgh. And I found out about other food co-ops in other places. And I found out about cooperative dis distribution networks, which actually were collapsing just as I came on the board and um, I was incredibly heartbroken over that because here we had um, in 2001 and long before all the way going back to the 70s and, and maybe even longer in, in some places back to uh, the depression. Um, uh, we had uh, food distribution systems that were wholesalers cooperatively owned by the cooperative retailers. Um, and that system had been uh, under stress and collapsing over the course of the 70s, not maybe a little bit in the 70s, but um, certainly the 80s and 90s, and now it's 2002. <clears throat> and the last three that existed in the country um, were, were going under. Um, two of them were just declaring bankruptcy, and one, the most profitable one, um, was uh, called Blooming Prairie. And um, Blooming Prairie was being bought by the um, distributor for Whole Foods, which is called UNFI, you know, um, which now actually has pretty much a monopoly on the natural foods distribution market. I mean, they, they are the only game in town. Um, <clears throat> I mean, there are some, you know, for there's Frontier, if you want to get herbs and spices and that kind of thing. And there, there are some smaller um, regional distributions uh, of specific things, but not a, you know, we carry multiple kinds of organic groceries. Um, uh, and certainly not that relationship co-op to co-op. Um, so back in the old, old days of food co-ops, you know, we used to say from farm to fork, you know, you could do everything with a cooperative, cooperative farm, cooperative distribution, cooperative store, and you're a member of your cooperative. And, and so that, that dream, you know, cause I guess I'm maybe a, 
a hippie born too late or something. You know, that dream was dying as I was coming onto the board of my food co-op. Um, and um, um, what sent me down that rabbit hole? Um, oh, mentoring. So I, I didn't really have a mentor at that time, but I was very, very interested in rebuilding the cooperative movement, um, uh, which in, in those days it was, that was the cooperative movement to me. I didn't know about other kinds of cooperatives, but I had heard about worker-owned cooperatives, you know, and um, I, a friend of mine and I had a housekeeping business and um, she uh, had decided uh, to, to move out of state. Um, she moved out of, um, and you know, people had asked us a lot, you know, can we work with you um, and do some housekeeping? And, um, but we, you know, between the two of us, we had just enough business to be full time. Um, and sometimes we had a little bit of extra work, but um, anyway, when, when she moved away, I, um, I couldn't clean all those houses myself. So I called everybody who had ever asked if they wanted to, you know, if we wanted help with cleaning and asked them if they wanted to do a worker co-op, um, owned by the housekeepers. Uh, and there were models that I'd heard about in California, um, and I think Boston, uh, and um, uh, you know, um, environmentally friendly cleaning, um, which is what we were doing. Uh, and uh, most of those groups were Latina groups um, and um, uh, in various capacities, they, were, they had a facilitator who, were, who was helping them. Um, I wasn't a facilitator. Um, I was just a person you know, trying to do a co-op, but um, we were struggling to develop a worker co-op my only you know, limited experiences were in food co-ops. Um, and so uh, it was slow going um, and I didn't have a lot of expertise. And, um, but we, we pulled it off in 2007, we finally incorporated an actual co-op. And that was the same year that I met Kate Smith. Um, and also the same year that I met Adam Schwartz um, uh, at a conference. Uh, and Kate and Adam both became mentors to me as I was trying to formalize my capacity to develop cooperatives um, out of having struggled to develop a cooperative without having any resources. You know, I mean, we were in Pittsburgh and most of the co-op development was happening out in the countryside or it was happening on the East Coast. Um, and the East End Food Co-op um, was developed a really long time ago. So the people who developed it were not available. <laughs> and, um, and, um, uh, and, but I did have access to, uh, Mark Goring who, cause at that time, uh, I became for, uh, about a year and a half or so, I was president of the board of the food co-op. <clears throat> and, um, and so our consultant for the food co-op helped me, uh, and I adapted some food co-op language things you know um, and then i um uh so so mark helped a lot adam schwartz helped me to just grow as a person like i was this i was a very hippie kind of girl and um adam and his colleagues at national cooperative business association wore suits 
And so, um, but he was a really, really cool person. And he helped me to see that just because a person wears a suit doesn't mean that they're not cooperative and that they don't share um, the values that I had. Um, so, um, uh, and Kate Smith was phenomenal. Kate Smith was an incredible mentor. And I'm sorry you didn't get to work with her more. Um, she was, uh, by the time that I met you, she was ready to move on. And uh, now um, uh, Peggy, uh, Peggy Fogarty, um, who uh, you'll meet if you join Cooperation Works, um, <clears throat> uh, is running KDC. Um, but Kate taught me how to do um, feasibility studies before I even had taken any classes. I eventually in 2008 um, went to um, a part-time, I guess it was really, I guess, full-time, but we went once, once a week for a month, um, to a program, uh, a graduate program in, um, Manchester, New Hampshire at Southern New Hampshire University. You probably see their commercials now because they're almost all online now, but back in those days, we, the people who were in the program, um, <clears throat> uh, we get together once a month and and have these intensive all-day trainings and then hang out in a hotel that we pretty much had to ourselves like a dormitory and you know we're, we're all older we're, we aren't college age people anymore you know but it was really fun to be in that you know for one weekend a month you're back in college in you know in a dormitory sort of a setting and um, having some fun with people that, that share your values. Um, so that was um, um, where I learned a lot of the technical stuff, but Kate had already been training me on uh, feasibility studies, which is really the hardest part of cooperative development um, because it requires a lot of accounting background. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so, um, and Kate, Kate was just a, a great friend too, you know, uh, um, she was a very approachable, kind person. And I remember um, we would be at conferences, you know, and I'd be so excited. I'd be like, Kate, you know, so-and-so wants to go out after, um, you know, this session and you should come out with us. And Kate would be like, oh, I got up at 530. I know. <laughs> and so she'd be like, I'm going to take a pass on that. And uh, um, so now I'm at that place where, I don't get up at 5.30, but I, I don't need to go out and party with co-op people anymore like I used to. Yeah, and, and so um, you mentioned Keystone Development Center, or KDC, um, mm -hmm. and so I want to give some context for folks who might be listening around that. So when I first got into co-op development with you, one of the things I learned is that funding to do cooperative development um, largely comes through the Rural Cooperative Development Grant um, of the Farm Bill every year, the USDA, um, and that funds centers across the nation um, in different like regional hubs. Um, so Keystone Development Center served the Mid-Atlantic region. Um, Rocky Mountain Farmers Union Cooperative Development Center serves the Rocky Mountain region. 
Um, they each have three states that they cover, right? And so it, it's dependent on how much demand there is in different regions, but like, yeah, yeah that's, that's a normative model for how co-op development has looked for many generations in this country. It's only been since the early 90s that the RCDG provided technical assistance funding. So basically to subsidize technical assistance, primarily for farmers and rural people. There were cooperatives and people developing cooperatives before that. Um, and how the development happened um, was a little different. It was more almost like um, Farmers Union like, you know, so Rocky Mountain Farmers Union could probably tell you a lot more about that than me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so in that context, rural cooperative development had an opportunity to receive grant funded technical assistance. Um, and there really wasn't the same set of resources to do urban cooperative development, cooperative development for, you know, worker co-ops and, and for, for communities that could really benefit from um, the economic empowerment that comes along with, uh, with cooperative models. And that was something that I, you know, really wanted to focus on. I wanted to focus in urban cooperative yeah. development, but there wasn't always the resources. So over the years, it was a spotty experience of having, of being able to, to do that work and being funded for it. Mm -hmm. um, and nowadays that that's mostly coming from out of foundations that have a vested interest in like developing a solidarity economy locally where it's in order to keep you know, uh, money circulating locally and to stop the, the leakage of money leaving the community. Um, so anyway, I, I wanted to invite you to speak on, um, given the, the limited uh, or the different circumstances, the limited set of resources in urban cooperative development, and I know that you have primarily worked, especially since moving to Detroit, um, with urban cooperative development, what are your thoughts on the role that mentorship can play in that context and what does it look like to be mentoring and and playing kind of a leadership role um, in terms of supporting from the, the the grassroots development of urban cooperative development yeah that um that is a very good question um so uh urban cooperative development funding has been um, the nut to crack for the past 30 years in cooperative development. Now, the, the thing is, is that most people who are forming a cooperative, especially a worker owned cooperative, um, don't have the money to just flat out pay um, someone that would ultimately equal a livable wage, you know, to, uh, to do um, feasibility and other kinds of um, board consulting, uh, that sort of stuff. So, um, we originally, well, what I originally, um, trying to tackle that issue, um, as I was finishing up my degree at Southern New Hampshire University, um, I was, that was the nut I was trying to crack for my thesis. And, um, so I got a bunch of people together to talk about that. And, um, we ultimately out of that came the idea of creating an urban cooperative development funding stream through um, one of the other uh, federal departments so that it would just be similar to the RCDG, you know. Um, and there are uh, a few different um, programs in the rural, like the 
um, a disadvantaged farmers grant. There are a few programs in the rural, um, the Department of Agriculture, um, but we couldn't put ours in the Department of Agriculture because they are confined to only doing things in rural places. Um, so, uh, so we were looking for another department and um, we, uh, we actually wrote a bill. Um, it was sponsored by a Philadelphia congressman. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and so I spent a, about two and a half years with Cooperation Works working on that. Um, and uh, Congress changed, you know, um, it, like we were working on this in 2010, 2011, 2012, it was introduced right as um, the Republicans regained a majority in the uh, House of Representatives, in Congress across the board. And so they just weren't trying to uh, pass bills for any kind of development coming from Chaka Fatah from Philadelphia and his band of hippies. So, <laughs> um, uh, so, um, so that, that was one way that we tried to, uh, to do urban cooperative development funding. Um, I actually think that uh, the program that you put together, I, you know, I did look at that um, uh, briefly. Um, it's uh, the uh, prosper prosperity prosperity pact. Um, no, that's not it. Oh, the plenty pact. Plenty pact. That's right. The plenty pact. I think that's probably um, one of the best things that I've seen. After um, so after figuring out that federal funding wasn't going to be on the table, um, a lot of cooperative developers started to go with you know two different directions. Some went with well, let's talk to cities, and someone with let, let's talk to foundations. And there are various, um, many different programs doing urban cooperative development based on cities and foundations. Um, and the problem with that is it's very piecemeal. Um, it's very much about who you know, um, and you know, people who get grants are you tend to be people who have already gotten grants. So there's a, a lot of, um, uh, you know, funding people who are actually not a part of the cooperative, cooperative movement to do things, you know, that, you know, um, it happened in Texas, actually. Uh, the cooperative, um, uh, in Texas, there was a, um, it's called ACBA, the Austin Cooperative Business Association. And they spent about a year and a half putting together um, uh, a modest ask of $75,000 from the city of Austin to do um, uh, cooperative development, you know, through ACBA. And they have people with experience in doing cooperative development who were going to, uh, to work on that. And the city of Austin um, said yes. And then instead of giving the money to the group that had been formed, they gave money to an outside consultant um, to, and, and they spent the entire $75,000 just on doing a study about what would be the best kind of cooperative 
development to happen in Austin. You know, just like studying co-op development itself, not actually helping people develop cooperatives. And they hired an agency that had nothing to do with cooperatives. So they, um, they thwarted, you know, a really vibrant move, movement that they had there at that time. There were people there who were ready to do it. They moved away. They, they moved, you know, they were like, okay, we are not gaining traction here. Um, so now Austin, um, luckily there are a lot of people who have skills in Austin. Um, Austin is, uh, I hear, finally putting out a call for another $75,000 for someone to do co-op development in Austin or to be, you know, subsidized to do co-op development in Austin. Um, and, uh, um, but the, the original people who were there are just gone, you know, and um, I, I know a few people who um, might be able to do it. So, uh, so it, it's going to be a happy ending, I hope. Um, but, you know, it's also been five years. There's five years of nothing happened. Um, the co-op movement began to disintegrate in Austin, um, partly as a result of that. So I'm curious about, um, in the context that you're speaking into around, there's a lot of restrictions um, in the urban cooperative development space, just in terms of resources. Where do those resources come from? Is it enough to pay technical assistance providers a livable wage? Um, I'm curious if you have um, thoughts on how mentorship looks in that environment. Um, and, you know, I, I encourage us to open up the discussion of mentorship that takes alternative forms. I mean, what does mentorship even, even mean, right? Like, is it that somebody with knowledge is able to, like, coach, somebody with knowledge in a community context is able to coach um, young entrepreneurs or, or what, yeah, like how can it look and how does it look? How have you seen it be successful and impactful? The mentorship that has been most meaningful that I've done in, in Detroit actually hasn't had much to do with cooperatives at all. Um, it has to do with young people that I met who were having a rough time getting along in the world. <laughs> Um, and they were like between 16 and 21, this group of friends, um, uh, and um, helping to navigate things like, how do you get your driver's license? You know, and, and then there are barriers in Detroit if you're a young person to getting a driver's license. For instance, one person who I helped to get, um, who actually, since they shut it down, um, they shut down the Secretary of State. We haven't been back. So he has, I don't think he has his license yet. Um, but um, uh, one person I was helping with that um, had uh, a driving, a bad driving record because somebody stole his ID and got like a ticket or something um, and pretended to be him, you know? And so how do you, and so he has to pay like all these fines for something that he didn't do. And how do you navigate something like that when you're 20, 22 years old, you know, and you, you know, don't know the first thing about um, how to get a driver's license, you know? Um, uh, so, so I, I've been like just 
multiple trips to the DMV and going to court over stuff like that, you know, um, that's what um, more what mentorship looks like for me now, um, because the people, you know, who uh, who have gravitated toward my energy are people who um, co-ops aren't what they're looking for. They're, they're really looking for a person uh, who maybe would just know something a little bit different than what their parents know, but who's maybe the same age as their parents. You know, like their parents have a set of skills, um, but how do I navigate bureaucracy is not their forte. You know, <laughs> not everyone's forte. So, um, so I, I've been doing a lot of that kind of thing. Um, and it's been really rewarding, actually. Um, I love these kids to death and they're, they're not kids anymore. I've been doing this for since 2013. So they're young adults now. Um, and um, yeah, just questions about how, how do you stay out of trouble? You know, um, one time, a, a really, really long time ago, um, I saw two of the young men who, um, I actually, I started mentoring these guys um, uh, at, at a church. They were in trouble at church a lot, you know, and so they, um, there were five boys who we just decided together um, that we would read a, a book on nonviolent communication so that they could learn how to not get themselves into so much trouble, you know? <laughs> and um, we didn't get through the whole book um, because we lost our space. And so we started going to the Detroit Institute of Art and, you know, um, doing museums and stuff together instead of reading the, the book the rest of the way through. But just, um, uh, th but what we did read of the book still resonates with them. And, um, and also, uh, um, just, uh, you know, they know that I'm a person who isn't going to judge them. Uh, so, so one time, um, I, uh, I saw a couple of them, you know, hanging out on the corner and I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they were honest with me and they were up to no good. And, uh, um, I, <laughs> um, I said to them, you know, if you need money, you don't have to do this. I know that this is one of the only things, you know, that you can get, they were getting $10 an hour for doing some no good. <laughs> and um, you, you don't, you know, come on over to my house. I'll, I'll pay you $15 an hour to mow my lawn or, you know, hang my pictures or whatever, you know? And, um, and so a uh, little time went by and one day, when they needed some money, they called me and they said, hey, this is the story. We actually would rather work on your lawn, you know? And I don't think they do that other stuff anymore, you know? So, and I like to think that that was uh, a very helpful thing for them. And, uh, and we're, still, we're still close, we're all close. Thank you. What a great, great, great sharing and great story. Um, yeah, it really drives home the, the idea that, you know, mentorship takes, 
can take many forms. And, you know, I think about how cooperative development, um, sometimes people get real excited about the cooperative model. Um, and that especially takes place in like communities where people have higher education. Um, but like what they are missing in, in my experience is an awareness that cooperative building is an outcome of community building and cooperative building supports community building. And so that there's like this feedback loop between those things and community building, um, you know, there's also a need to build education, information, training, awareness, just like what the possibilities are and yeah. how could the world look a little different than we've ever known or seen or, or can we, you know, how do we uh, imagine something different for ourselves and then learn about the models that are available to, to enact that. Um, I want to note that um, on your Zoom profile, your name shows up as Antique Turing. Um, <laughs> so I have some questions about, about Antique Turing. Um, Antique Turing is a business that you began um, with the, the goal, from my understanding, of building it into a worker cooperative and then transitioning ownership of the worker cooperative to, to the members, to the worker members, um, and specifically the mission was around creating jobs that were good jobs, um, you know, and, and in the context of a worker cooperative for people who had less access to good jobs, people who would be struggling to obtain and hold on to good jobs in the city. And so, um, yeah, to, to me, the, when you explained that model to me, it, it really felt something like mentorship where you're you're building you're using your skill set and your knowledge to build something that then becomes an asset to the community that's beyond just yourself right so I was wondering if you could tell tell us more about um, how this idea came about and what you've done so far to build antique touring yeah so um antique touring company uh, was um, started when I, I went to a conference um, about social enterprise um, and uh, um, out of that conference, I was a part of a business plan competition for social enterprise. And the social enterprise that I imagined was um, a, a business that would be a, what we, we call a build and recruit co-op. So you build a business, you recruit people into the business to work, to be the workers and you train them um, on the job. And then when the workers seem ready, you know, to actually, they can handle this business without you, then you sell them the business, um, basically for what you have in it, you know, um, you don't want to try to, um, but over time, you know, so, so they would acquire a little bit of stock, you know, um, and over, let's say five years, you know, 20% over five years, um, so that they can continue to work. And that can be um, just a, a small deduction from wages and your, um, uh, you recoup, you know, what, what you've got in the business. Um, and so that is the, the, mo the cooperative model for antique touring company. Um, so a couple of problems that I ran into um, were that 
the model uh, needs to scale um, in order to be profitable. Um, and so, uh, so we were not profitable in our first two years. And so this year, I mean, I was like from February, we, we opened in mid-April to the first of May, you know, depending on the weather. Um, we were like pouring into um, growing this business when we got quarantine orders. And um, so- Could you describe what the business does? Oh yeah, 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 of course. And so, um, so this is another thing. Uh, a lot of the worker co-ops that are um, created are co-ops where on the job, it's just not that much fun. You know, like housekeeping isn't that much fun. Um, and it's not something that you wanna necessarily do for the whole rest of your life. Um, uh, so I wanted to create a business that would be fun and entertaining, not only for other people, you know, who are the beneficiaries, but something that on the daily is a place you want to go, that you want to, you know, you're having fun. So, so anti-touring is a touring business of Detroit, and we tour in antique cars. Uh, we have two, two Model A Fords, one, uh, and, and each one of them can seat five people, including the driver. Um, <clears throat> uh, they're both four doors. One of them is a convertible or what we call an open car, really. A convertible actually has glass windows, but that's a technicality. Um, so one, one is a, a convertible, one is, has a hard top, because you, know, you know, never know what the weather is going to be like in Michigan. Um, and uh, so we have two tours that we give, um, and they're both curated by me. Um, and I'm hoping that I will recruit people who curate their own tours eventually. Our first tour was of an island called Belle Isle, um, and it's been an island park in the middle of the Detroit River, uh, owned by the city since uh, 1880. Um, and uh, right now, the state, because of, um, you guys probably remember, a few years ago, Detroit had a um, <clears throat> uh, bankruptcy. Um, so during the bankruptcy, the state agreed to run the park for 30 years um, and that would take the cost of running the park away from the city and and so now it's a state-run park but the island is still owned by the city and I, I like to point that out because a lot of people just say oh the state took it over or you know it now belongs to the state and that's not true um, so um, uh, but it, there are some incredible buildings um, on this island and the most elaborate fountain like that you will ever, ever see. It's called the Scott Fountain. Um, there's a, um, an aquarium and a conservatory, a beach, uh, two boat houses. One is a yacht club, the other one a rowing club. Um, and, and all of these institutions and other institutions that are on the island have a lot of history. You know, so I, I get to be on a beautiful island, you know, and drive around very slowly explaining the history of the island to people. And, and I also talk about buildings that aren't there anymore. Uh, <clears throat> um, uh, in particular, I like to talk about the, uh, the old um, 
ferry station because for the first five years, the only way to get to the island was by boat. There wasn't a, um, there wasn't a bridge. And uh, people actually went there by ferry all the way up until automobiles became very, very popular. And uh, they closed the ferry station in 1929. Um, <clears throat> but um, so the other tour uh, is a little bit longer than the island tour. The island tour is two hours and the other one's two and a half. It's called From Tinkerers um, to Titans in the Auto Age. And it's sponsored by um, a group, um, a nonprofit group called Motor Cities National Heritage Area. And Motor Cities is associated with the National Park Service. Um, and so it's a, there's like a designated 16 county area here in Michigan that has little spots of incredibly important historical places. And so uh, Antique Touring's um, Tinkerers to Titans tour is really about as close as you can get to the center of that. Um, the building where we have our, um, our garage is in the first building that Ford ever built to, for Ford Motor Company. Um, it dates to 1904. And um, so we tour around that neighborhood um, and then we go to two factories just on one about a mile and a half east of the neighborhood and the other one about a mile and a half north of the neighborhood. Um, uh, when, um, uh, I mean, this neighborhood is now a small industrial center that is, um, uh, pretty run down, to be quite honest, you know. <clears throat> um, many abandoned factory buildings, um, but small ones. Um, and then uh, we go to, um, to, to look at the abandoned um, uh, Packard plant. And the Packard plant is east of the city. Um, it was the first steel reinforced concrete factory that was ever built. And if you ever look at old factory buildings, if you see the ones that look like they're made of Legos because they're all just like this big square window, another big square window, another big square window, th those are still reinforced concrete. And that was a huge improvement over previous factory design. Um, it let in more light um, and it, um, uh, was a much stronger building um, and, and it also allowed for fl continual floor space. You didn't have to have load-bearing walls that would hold up the, um, uh, the structure in, on the interior of the building. They, they were just pillars. Um, <clears throat> so uh, this was a precursor to being able to do an assembly line, um, like a continually moving assembly line. You had to first have a building that would be big enough and spacious enough and have enough light um, in this big, big space, you know, to, um, to be able to, uh, to do a, a big assembly line operation. Well, that was accomplished by Ford. Um, uh, he, to the north of the city, Ford built um, the Highland Park plant, uh, which was completed in, in 1910, like January 1st, 1910, um, was when they moved in. And um, and that building uh, by 1913 was the building where the first continually moving assembly line was was built. So all of the prosperity 
of the 20th century and also the culture of waste you know that goes along with that needing to continually manufacture in order to continually make the profits all of that um, began here in Highland Park um, just about a mile and a half north of Ferd's original little plant um, uh, at, at the, the Highland Park plant so we taught so so we go I mean that was like a tiny little snippet but the tour goes into a lot more detail obviously of the entire landscape and who did what and um, <clears throat> uh, and it ends um, uh, and so I, tr I try to for the most part tell the story from beginning you know through time um, but it ends at the um, General Motors headquarters the old General Motors headquarters um, which was built in 1922 and across the street is the Fisher building which was a part of General Motors at the time it was built, um, <clears throat> um, which is um, a building that you can walk through that was completed in 1928 and is the most ornate, elaborate, like Paris has nothing on this building kind of building, right? Um, and so that's the last place that you walk through. Um, people out, that's where people get out of that tour and they walk through the building and I pick them up on the other side so they can see this incredible, Art Deco interior, um, <clears throat> uh, and you know what the uh, the titans of the auto industry, you know what their wealth could buy before the stock market crash of twenty nine. Uh, yeah, the, so the idea of growing this business means that we have to be profitable first, and then we grow the business. Um, and this was the year that we were. You know, we have two years of marketing this business under our belts now, Brian and I and Carrie and Rick, who are the four people who work in the business. Um, and um, uh, so we, we were we were all over it this for this year. And now we have to hopefully execute the same plan for next year. Hopefully COVID-19 will be over with. We we can't operate this year at all because. Um, uh, our insurance is so expensive that, um, and we have to pay for a whole year's insurance, no matter what, like the travel insurance does not go down in January when our cars don't move um, uh, because business insurance is like that. Um, so um, we can't afford to do a half season. You know, we need to be profitable. We need a season that starts as soon as the weather turns good and ends on the 31st of October. That's the story so far of antique touring and tune in next year. Um, I will tell you more. You know, it's, it's um, really powerful to take one's skills and build a company in this build and recruit model and then recruit people who could most benefit from the company and, and you know, do the exit like you're speaking about. Um, as well, and it can create opportunities where um, none may have existed before. And something that I've spoken about with peers of mine is the power of people um, to to create pathways for others that may may not have existed existed before. Um, and so there's a obviously a need 
right now to involve more young people and people of color in the cooperative movement. And there's a, a real need, especially um, given the way the economy is flagging and disintegrating around COVID-19, like there's a need to involve more people in the co-op movement generally. And so um, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on how we can practice mentorship in an anti-oppression framework um, in a way that would be successful um, across differences in age or background, including class background or race or gender. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? It's tricky um, to just say, well, I want to mentor people who don't look like me. Um, you, you can't just go do that. You know, people will be like, who are you, crazy lady? You know, why, you know, you know, that, that is, and I have been called this um, white savior idea, right? Um, I have something that would be good for you, so let me give it to you. Um, and I learned that lesson when I first moved here, you know, that I needed to slow way the F down um, because, you know, I was trying to give something to people who that's not what they were asking for. Um, and sometimes when people were asking for it, they were asking for something um, besides my services. They, they were asking to, um, to be trained to do it themselves. Um, and there was no um, capacity except for in the nonprofit world um, for me to be paid to do that. Um, and, um, I did a few nonprofit gigs, you know, um, here in, in Detroit. And what I learned about having the nonprofit be an intermediary, you know, so that not my nonprofit, um, but the nonprofit, a, a different nonprofit, you know, like a umbrella nonprofit that wants to start co-ops and hires us as an expert means that, the recruiting people who just really want a job and they don't care what kind, you know, and, and so it's not the co-op that they're interested in. They're interested in the job and they don't understand why they have to go to all these classes and why they have to learn this and that. And so the, the model for um, the cooperative model that we call um, a co-op academy doesn't really seem to work um, when People are like quite literally gonna be choosing between, you know, pick my kid up at school and make sure he has something to eat right now, because I just worked all day and my kid was, you know, somewhere at school or you know, doing something, you know, after school, or come to a class and learn about board development. It's a it's a no-brainer. You don't go learn about board development, you know, you go and take care of your child. Um, and so there are formalities in the co-op structure that don't work in, in uh, a setting where people are um, having a, um, their, their main concern is, you know, how they're gonna get through this day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Um, and, um, and so they're like, sure, nonprofit, we're gonna do it your way, we'll, you know, this is what you want to do. We'll do it, but but there there isn't a commitment to that by them. And why why should there be? 
you know. <clears throat> and so I um, decided that uh, I just didn't want to do that anymore. And I wasn't getting paid any other way. Um, so, and, and the antique touring company is not yet a cooperative, you know, I intend for it to be a build and recruit cooperative. And the people who will eventually be the owners of a cooperative are the people who actually apply for the job and come in and do the job and stick with it for a while. And that actually has also could be an issue because it's a seasonal job. Like there's no way to pay ourselves in the winter. And, and the only way I can think of is if we have a really big bonus at the end of the year and then maybe um, there might be some since like I know landscapers can get at least in Pennsylvania where I used to live landscapers can get unemployment in the off season so maybe we could get unemployment in the off season um, but um, uh, so anyway I'm still working out these challenges uh, but being a developer you know facilitator board consultant um, that uh, for me, anyway, isn't where it's at. However, um, if there's another person, you know, who wants to learn something from me, you know, um, first of all, Brian has done some board consulting, um, <clears throat> uh, but I, I usually don't do board consulting as much. Um, but like, for instance, one of the things that I do really well is feasibility. You know, if somebody wanted to learn feasibility, I would be super thrilled to teach them for free. I don't need any compensation for that because I now have other things going on, you know, that are sustaining me. Um, and so um, I have tried a few times to get people interested in, you know, letting me teach them the feasibility and uh, it doesn't, I haven't had any really serious takers so far. So that's okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it, it brings home the point that, you know, um, mentorship and providing direct relationship and, and um, training and information and guidance to somebody doesn't have to fit into a cooperative development context, um, but it can feed, it can feed the streams of you know, developing more cooperators who then go on to, to build great things. And that's something I'm really passionate about is developing just a kind of a base knowledge and base language around cooperation uh, methods and solidarity economy and uh, cooperatives as an extension of um, solidarity practices in, in economic practices. Um, and, and so building cooperators, building people who have the capacities and the knowledge embodied to, um, you know, lend to the creation of successful co-ops. Um, to me, that's a really important praxis. That's how I try to approach what I do. Um, I developed a curriculum that was largely um, based on and inspired by the Traveling Cooperative Institute's oh. curriculum. Um, and, you know, the 30s, I'm sorry, from the 30s. No, um, the oh. from recently the Emily Lippold Cheney. Created. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hers might have been inspired by the I, I remember somebody had a traveling something or another that was inspired um, by the rural electric cooperatives traveling 
the traveling cooperative show. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you about that some other time. It was, you know, cause I can get deep into the history stuff. So cool. Um, yeah, no, uh, based on, um, the, that curriculum called collecting ourselves, which came out of, um, North country cooperative foundation, I think, Fun funded it and um, the development of the curriculum, the formalization of ongoing education activities under the Chris Olson Traveling Cooperative Institute model for, for many years. Um, and there was a train the trainers on it, on that curriculum in 2016 in Minneapolis. Wow. And I went to that um, and I brought it back to Denver, or back to Colorado and became very active in organizing a Colorado version of the Traveling Cooperative Institute where we went um, to towns in New Mexico and Colorado. And then um, in the year after that, created a, an urban focused curriculum um, that addressed some, some gaps that I was seeing in co-ops 101s and in general, just like how do we go about educating? And to me, it's, it's about developing cooperators. It's about developing political consciousness of like, when does cooperation, economic cooperation tend to happen? What are the conditions? What makes it successful? Um, because co-ops obviously have to exist and compete in, in a capitalist framework, right? Um, so anyway, just situating that. And then this past year, we did a train the trainers here in Denver on that curriculum where thanks to the amazing organizing work and the network of Jessica Holguin with the Center for Community Wealth Building, we were able to recruit, um, and we ended up delivering education to um, 16 people, um, mostly women, mostly people of color, um, from all around Denver and, and even beyond Denver uh, a little bit. There was one person from Colorado Springs, for example. Um, training them in this cooperative entrepreneurship curriculum with this explicit intent that they go out, <laughs> that they be equipped to go out and deliver this in a facilitation model, this, this education in their communities upon request. So whenever, you know, making connections in their communities and whenever a group would form or a pod or like a, an organization would request it, they would be able to go and do that and they would get um, funding for that from a nonprofit source. And so the idea being that we really disseminate and situate capacities for cooperative education like in the communities, right? And so it's not just coming from this like one expert, this like, you know, um, this one educated, you know, uh, individual. Um, and so that was part of a, a praxis, right? Part of a theory of change and an effort um, that, that I have held for a long time and that you've helped inspire and also that Jessica Holguin holds as well. And so we worked together on that project. Um, but that's just, that's really just the beginning. It's, that was last year and who knows what happens next, but. That's fantastic. Um, I actually would really enjoy coming out for that training. And this is another thing that I think um, people don't necessarily realize just because I've been developing co-ops for, you know, I don't know, several years. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't need to train on new ideas. I think everyone should train on new, new ideas. Um, mm. And uh, that was something that actually at one point 
um, I, I kind of got a little bit hurt because I, I asked to be a part of a training and people were younger than me who were doing it. And they're like, oh no, this training is for young people. You have too much experience. But there was some stuff in it that I knew I didn't know because I, I read, you know, and, and I really wanted to learn what they had to say. Um, and so I think that young people, um, you know, who think that just because you've been doing something for more years than them, that you know everything about it or that you know so much about it that you don't need to hear their ideas, um, you know, um, that is, you know, hmm. uh, that that's not good. <laughs> you yeah. know? I want to learn and grow and, and train. Um, my, my friend Margaret Lewis is 83 years old and she can not see very well. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, but she's a member of Solidarity, which is a group that my, uh, Brian and I, my husband are members of. And, um, uh, in Solidarity, she learns a lot of stuff about solar power and various kinds of, um, you know, home energy efficiency things. And, um, it's not because she thinks that she's going to be the one to go out there and do it. You know, um, although, you know, maybe I, I would, you know, I mean, to me, I, in, in those days I would have had extra tools in, in my capacities, you know, which would have helped me in those days. Um, but just for the very sake of learning, she just wants to know about these things and to learn and to continually grow. And so um, I think that that um, is actually the most beautiful thing about our friendship, Caroline. Um, I, I might have started out, you know, as in a mentor role for you, but we're friends. And I have so many things to learn from you. And I, and I have in the past learned some really important things from you. Um, do you remember when we went to, uh, well, I bought his book, the, the fellow, um, who was inspired by Tikka Khan when he was in prison. Do you, do you know, do you remember his name? We went to Fleet Mall. Fleet Mall, that's right. We went, um, we learned about the concept of radical responsibility. Um, I have used that, uh, like I probably, maybe not every day, but not a week goes by that I don't think about radical responsibility. Um, and, and what it means. And that, again, is a whole nother podcast. But I would never have had that growth in my, in my own person, you know, had I not known you and you hadn't shared that with me. Um, and so I want to just make sure that mentor is the word for when we do this, when older people share their information and knowledge with younger people. Um, but, you know, it, it actually is a free-flowing two-way street. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to highlight that mentorship at its best is really um, about building relationship. Um, yeah. And relationships are what transform communities, transform possibilities, transform people's lives um, because of that give and take and exposure to new information. Um, and it, I totally agree with you that 
mentorship um, to, to frame it too strictly like, oh, knowledge and information and resources only flows in one direction um, isn't quite accurate. Um, certainly not in anti-oppression models. Um, I, you know, one of the things that has fed my co-op development career in really interesting ways is that prior to getting involved in this, this career path, um, I had been trained to provide anti-oppression based education um, in a bicycle collective context. So hey. teaching bike mechanics to, um, to everybody, to the public, to adults, to youth, to women, um, to women with their children. Um, so in that context, like one of the things, one of the techniques that, that I was taught um, in, in order to, to teach bicycle mechanics in a non-oppressive way or an anti-oppressive way is to be really honest and direct in communication, including if, if I didn't know something, you know, I didn't have to pretend to be an expert. I didn't have to feel threatened by not knowing. We were equals in a learning process. And so if somebody was like, hey, I want to know how to do this, but, but you don't know how to do it, you know, I would say, that's right. Like, let's look that up together. Let's look that up together is the phrase that's so disarming because people come in with a student teacher expectation, a hierarchical expectation. And to say like, no, I'm just in this, I'm just facilitating a learning process. So I'm in this with you. And if there's something you don't know, I'm a partner to you in getting that knowledge, getting that issue resolved. Um, and so I just wanted to share that because it really sh speaks to the same theme that we're yeah. investigating here that, you know, we can be partners in, um, in our empowerment processes, partners in our learning processes, partners yeah. and, and, and equals, even when there's um, different things that we are learning from each other, there can still be equity in that container for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Any, any final thoughts um, about this theme or just about anything else that has come up in this conversation um, on uh -huh. co-op development and mentorship before we close out? Well, I, I know I, I haven't been doing a lot of co-op development lately, um, except for, you know, the little bit that goes into antique touring that is way pre-co-op. Um, but I still am interested in learning. So the next time you do an online training, the one that you had just described, um, uh, that uh, um, Jessica and uh, and you did, that was inspired by um, uh, Lippold Cheney, Emily, <laughs> Emily Lippold Cheney. Um, <clears throat> uh, would you? Uh, I, I'd I'd really like to be a part of that. Great, thank Good you time. for Joy. sharing that, and and likewise. Um, it's very much on my mind to follow up with your offer about teaching how to conduct feasibility studies, um, because oh. that is a known, it's a known gap in the technical assistance space here, working at the grassroots, at least like I do, um, in the cooperative development world um, here in, in this region. And uh, I know of some talented, you know, um, potential like co-op developers or people who are really, um, you know, interested to go into that space, at least to explore it, um, who might take those lessons. And so what I was thinking is rather than just me saying, oh, hey, Lisa, I'd like to learn that. 
Um, I'm okay. now conceiving of it like, well, what if we could convene two or three or four people also who want to absorb those skills and knowledge so that we can actually build capacity to deliver those services yeah. locally. And then that becomes a business development activity unto itself, which is so fun and exciting. So if you are yeah. willing, we could also look at obtaining some some funding for that as well so that you don't have to just give your knowledge away, although that's also wonderful. <laughs> well, we haven't talked enough actually about the, um, uh, what do we call it? I'm sorry. I want to, now I want to say prosperity, but it's not. Plenty packed. Plenty, plenty packed. packed. Yeah. What, let's, let's do it with plenty packed. Because mm. I think that that uh, is something I, I also would like to learn more about. And so by going through the, um, you know, going through actually doing it, then I will be learning about it. So Cool. Wow. I'm so inspired to hear that that is resonating with you. Um, and I really appreciated that you, you mentioned it earlier in the context of, of mentorship or solidarity, right, in terms of how I'm trying to um, be in service to my community and making it accessible. And so um, that's wonderful that you're interested in adopting some variation of the Plenty Pact in this kind of an exchange. I love that. And uh, yeah, I think uh, it's... Uh, a really exciting offer to say, hey, I've got something to share. Why not do it in the Plenty Pact model? And so let's continue that conversation and follow up on it and see if it's something that we can extend to, to this broader community um, that I'm connected with, that's connected with the Plenty Pact and with cooperative conversations, these podcasts, right? Um, and make it like really truly an open invitation um, for people to to connect with us if they're wanting to participate in that. I think that ultimately for urban cooperative development, um, the Plenty Pact makes so much more sense than the nonprofit model to me. Um, because the nonprofit model is spending a lot of money and that money isn't necessarily going toward what people need and it isn't necessarily going toward um, what, uh, what what could really actually happen, you know, that, um, and, and the nonprofits are the people who decide what the people need and what, you know, what you are going to teach. And, um, <clears throat> and that uh, in and of itself is a huge barrier um, toward actually being in right relationship. You know, like what, everything that I read about Plenty Pact, um, like it was, it was about being in right relationship with the people who you're going to exchange knowledge and information with. And a part of that relationship is economic, but is also there showing you, you know, how they value what you're, what you have um, to share. And, and then they are also, you know, directly asking you for what they need, not for, you know, and then you get to say, well, I'm a good fit for this, or I'm not a good fit for this. You know, none of those, those three things, none of those exist in the nonprofit sponsored model. Um, the nonprofit um, is deciding, you know, what's, what the co-op is going to be, what, what you're going to be teaching. The nonprofit is deciding how much value these people should be having 
you know, um, should be evaluating from the relationship. It puts the person who's doing the development in a position where they can't be terribly um, as, as immediately responsive, you know, to the people. Um, and, it, and it just creates a, um, a structure that doesn't really need to be there. Um, so I, I think Plenty Pact uh, is probably in the long run a much, much more sustainable way of, of doing urban cooperative development. Thank you. It's really exciting to hear your perspective on it. And so far, it's not clear whether the design of the model is um, self-sustaining in like just within itself um, in terms of, um, you know, the relationships formed, the exchanges, the financial ex aspect of the exchange as well. Um, but what I do think is you know, I, I totally agree with you on the critique of the nonprofit model. And, and I, I really think a lot about what would happen if nonprofits had different praxis and recognized that if they just invest in community leaders, like to do what they are called to do, like transformation can result from that. And so if there was some opportunity for subsidization, sponsorship, partial sponsorship, um, so that, you know, I don't actually go under <laughs> financially, like, so that my business doesn't fail because I'm delivering services under a plenty packed model, right? Um, then that would be even more stable and even more um, able to ensure the longevity of being able to provide services like that. But for now, you know, it's like the first few years of a business. It's like, I'm still, it's just the first couple months, to be honest, I'm still feeling out if it's going to be viable in the long term and what it would take to make it viable. Maybe it's how I market it or who I talk to or how I approach the, the, the payment conversation, right? So there's various factors there, but um, yeah, I'm still, still testing it out, but happy to continue experimenting in that space with you. And yeah. thank you so much for for being a guest, Lisa. It's great to chat with you always. <laughs> always great to chat with you as well.